Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by the National Pork Board, Intervention, Crystal Spring, Johnsonville Foods, High Pork Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, Fibro Animal Health, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and PigEquipment.com. Brought to you by American Resources. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're joined by John Quackenbush to talk about boar, stud management, and semen storage. How are you doing today, John? I'm great. Thanks for the invite, Matthew. I'm glad to have you on. Uh, We are going into a topic here that I think most of our industry doesn't actually know much about when it comes to people who are working in the barns and and maybe not have been in it for their their life, uh, specifically with the boar stud, and then how important all of that is towards everything that's going on in the South Farm and beyond. And so before we get started, I'd love it if you could do an introduction of yourself and your background and how you got involved with pig production and Minitube. Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, John Quackenbush from Minitube USA. I'm the CCO here. Um, I was born and raised in West Central Minnesota on a pretty diverse farming operation uh, back in the late 80s and early 90s. We raised pigs, fat cattle, had row crops, all of those things um, that you would have seen back in those days. Uh, our pig farm was 300 sows, prior to finish, so I got a pretty good understanding of the breeding to finishing and marketing and all of that type of stuff uh, growing up. And then when I was in uh, getting ready for college, I actually uh, went to the University of Minnesota Kirkston, way up north by Canada there on a football scholarship. And uh Got to the point where I wasn't sure if I wanted to be involved in the South Farms all my life or go back home or whatever. And so I took an internship with Genetoport uh, when they were still around in 97 and uh, went into their boar stud just because I thought, well, maybe that was an easier life uh, than being on the South Farm. (laughs) And uh, I had a good time that summer. It was it was a lot to learn. You know, the boar studs were really becoming very popular at that point in time and trying to figure out um, what it was to be a commercial boar stud in in those days, which is very different now than it was back then, for sure. Um, But that got me interested in following this male repro path. And um, after I graduated from from college, I I, uh, uh, spent a small time in uh, southern Minnesota on a sow farm that had an internal boar stud and worked with them for a year and then took off and, and chased my wife down to Nebraska, which is where she was from, um, and started working for Zoltenko Farms uh, oh, okay. in northern Kansas and spent 14 years, almost 14 years there as uh, managing boar studs. So I uh, moved to Wisconsin shortly after that to get into the repro supply world, and I've been with Minitube USA um, since we started it in 2015 or the end of 20. So my job today, um, 
Minitube has looked different over uh, a lot of different years. Uh, Minitube USA is the new name uh, since 2015. Like I said, uh, we're a direct subsidiary or owned subsidiary of Minitube International out of Germany. Um, we're one of, of uh, 10 subsidiaries worldwide, and we have a distribution network of 150 distributors over the world. So we're uh, very much a global company. Um, Pigs is definitely our number one product supply in the, in the globe or across the globe from, from that standpoint. So most of us, uh, most people know us because of semen tubes, but um, um, we have a lot lot to offer from there. So my day-to-day, I take care of the sales and service teams here, um, do some consulting with bore studs and solving problems using our equipment and that. Yeah, I think my family knows about many too because of all of the the squishy stress. The stress balls, yeah. The stress, the stress our, sperms. Yep. Yeah. Yep. One of our one of our best toys that was uh I saw those many years ago and that just it's fitting when you go to the to the trade shows and everybody wants to come grab a stress. So Oh yeah, no, it's great. And with the course of people are throwing them around and you're just like, what the heck are those? But <laughs> It's great. And you get you get a few moms that wonder why you have those on your counter and how they're going to explain this later. So anyway. <laughs> That's great. Uh just a big white tadpole, all right? So Yep. That's correct. So you guys founded MiniTube USA in 2015. Can you spend right. a brief amount of time talking about that process or are you able to talk a little bit about how that all came together? Yeah, so um I guess a little bit of history. So the name Minitube's been in the US since the late eighties, early nineties. Um there was um the the Simmet family and some brothers. Um uh one of the brothers came to the US and founded Minitube of America back in the late eighties, early nineties time frame. Um and then moved to Wisconsin. Uh the business moved to Wisconsin in the mid nineties. So ninety-six was actually the 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 time frame. Um, there was they ran as sister companies. So many two of America and many two Germany ran as sister companies for many years. Um, you know, supplying products back and forth, but also knowledge and research and development over that time period. And then that those two split apart in uh, 2011. Um, and so the Mini Tube of America became MOFA Global. And so Mini Tube Germany then became Mini Tube International, had all of the different subsidiaries across the world. Uh, and so in 2015, Mini Tube International decided to jump back into the US business with their own subsidiary, um, which we called Mini Tube USA in 2015. Okay. So from 2015 through October of 2018, Minitube USA and Mofa Global were direct editors in the U.S. market. And then we, Minitube USA, purchased the assets of Mofa Global in 2018. And so kind of joined it back. in. Yeah. That's cool. It's always fun to hear how those things take place. Yeah. So before we jump into today's topic, I got a few rapid fire questions for you. Before long here, I'm going to have a nice little survey of what people people do. Yeah. Uh, it should be kind of fun. But first one is, what D1 college do you root for? I grew up in Minnesota, so I'm a golden gopher through and through. That is too bad. No. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I plug in a good go Hawks there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's your go-to karaoke song? 
Yeah, I heard uh, the podcast this morning on this one, and I was trying to think of a good karaoke song to come up with, but uh, um, I don't have one. I'm not a singer. Uh, my wife is the singer, but uh, what would she say? Probably, um, probably family tradition. Um, you know, old country western song. That's kind of one their their family does. So that that would be one. What is an actor that you love or you just can't stand? Yeah, so the actors I love, I grew up in the early and mid-90s, so SNL and Adam Sandler and Chris Farley and those guys, uh, when they were doing SNL back in those days, I still laugh today with everything that those guys have ever done. So um, Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, those would be the guys I resonate to for sure. What is a uh, favorite candy or chocolate? Uh, Reese's peanut butter cups is my, yeah, that's a good one. Oh, they actually just came out with one that has like a marshmallow top. Oh, yeah. Tastes, yeah it tastes just like Reese's puffs, the cereal. Cause that, <laughs> that it has like that cream flavor. It's, it's, it's incredible. And I haven't been able to find it since, but it was good. Huh. What's your go-to light beer? Uh, I've been a bush light guy since I was able to drink. What's your age that was? <laughs> What's your favorite can design then? Uh, I like the hunting cans actually in the fall. Um, and when they came out with Bushlight Apple, that was always intriguing to me because I wasn't a flavored beer guy, but uh, they did it by far the best when it came to Apple. So. Yeah, that's that's discontinued now, isn't it? It's supposed to be, yeah. Supposed to be. We I have a 30, was a 30 rack or whatever, a bushel. Uh, yeah. of that sitting around because not enough yeah. people wanted it. But uh, yeah, I got I got some of that remaining yet. So to jump into today's topic on just the boar stud, can you yeah. talk about a little bit what that boar stud is like? Uh, what are some of the processes that go into, into that? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I mean, we're realistically, it's still a um, – um, an ever-changing scenario, it feels like. I mean, we're 30 years of boar studs. Big production's been around a lot longer than that, but 30 years of what we would call a commercial or retail modern-type boar stud, and they're very different across the world. Um, most of them, uh, well, they all do the same process, which is collect semen and package it and be able to deliver it to the sow farms. Um, but there are technologies out there in the modern boar studs that can be very different from stud to stud, how they adapt it. Part of it's labor, part of it's the how old or new the structure could be. Um, a lot of boar studs weren't built as boar studs. Now, if you ask them today, there's a lot that were built as boar studs in the last 15 or 20 years. Mm. Um, but originally it was old finishing units or G barns that were remodeled into a boar stud because we needed them. So, um, so they took on kind of the footprint or what they had available to be able to do something uh, to collect semen and get it to customers. So um, today we we still hand collect some boards, but there's a lot of um, called semi-automated collection systems out there um, where you still need to to grasp the penis with your hand, but there's some sort of an artificial cervix that you can put the penis into. Um, and and clamp that cervix so that the pressure of the boar penis is still there. He feels like he's in a mating situation, and and then you can 
move from bore to bore and, and be able to connect them to this contraption and, and flex semen. So, so that's changed over the years. Those really came into play um, the mid early 2000s, I guess, 04, 05, 06, somewhere in there. So, um, so the barn layouts are, are, um, are changing from that standpoint. Uh, in the U.S. and Canadian markets, we still uh, house most of the boars in crates. There are some pens out there, but most of them are in crates. Um, you'll find that different in other parts of the world, uh, depending on what their welfare rules are or how they how they situate that. But most of the boars are housed in crates. Um, that way, they're you know they're in a space where where they're getting their full nutrition every time, and they're not beaten on the on the bore next to them or, or that type of thing. So um, collection pens have gotten a lot smaller than they used to be. Um, when I first started in the bore stud world, we were always told that we should get or allow the bore to be as natural as possible, give him room, allow him to, um, to, to maneuver the dummy around like he would a, a sow in a natural mating system. And now with time constraints and labor, we just need them to do their job, which is okay. an off the dummy, uh, get them collected and go back to their crate. So just hurry um, up and go and get back. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> yep. So so we we've, we've narrowed up collection pens. Um, we we always thought or we were told that we should give them the ability to see their neighbor or the boar that was on deck. Let's call it. He should be able to see the boar in front of him and what he, what he's doing. It'll make him go faster. And after years and years of that, it didn't matter. They were going to do it at whatever speed that they chose to do it at. So wait, so they actually it was actually a thing where they had said like if the boar is watching another boar do its thing, yep. it's going to help that boar do its thing faster to get ready. Yep, that's that was interesting. Idea. And now we now we wrap the collection pens in stainless steel or plastic so that they can't see anything. All they can focus on is the, the dummy that they're supposed to mount and not even be able to see people or anything. Walk in, mount the dummy, and then the people will, will help hook him up to the, to the semi-automated collection system and, and move on. So, so are they pretty are they pretty time. trained then that they just walk in, hop on and go? They they're yeah. just like ready to rock and roll. Yeah, so you, I mean, you need to train them to do any task, and pigs are smart. So boars will understand that their libido and anything you give them to mount, that's their task. That's what they know. And if you train them and you give them good, um, you give them a good scenario every time, so they they recognize that what they're doing is a good thing, they will do it the same way every time. And huh. so when they're young, when they get delivered from the multiplier, um, most boar studs are trying to train that boar within the first 30 days of arrival um, so that they're able to get on that, get in that path of, of going to the collection pen, mounting the dummy. They know exactly what's going to happen. They understand the human interaction that's going to happen. And then when they're completed, um, the ejaculation part that they get to go home and rest eat and then they can come back and do it whatever days that human's going to come get them to do it so how, so how big are they when they're training then and, and do you have to physically like pick them up and put them on the dummy yeah. or no no the, the the libido kicks in from that standpoint but okay that's changed over the years too the industry today 
has definitely gone down the Duroc path. Um, and the boars that we're getting today can be 280 to 300 pounds at five months of age. Um, when I started, it was 300 pounds at seven months of age. I mean, we really didn't want to train boars until they were 200 to 210 days old. That's when we thought sexual maturity was happening, um, or that's what the research had told us. Now, today, it's very common to see boars being trained to mount a dummy between 155 and 170. Oh, wow. Um, the, and they have libido at that point. I mean, if you get them into a position where they can smell, um, the pheromone smells are there. They understand what's going on. You took your time. You showed them what you're doing, what they're supposed to do, meaning that you put the boar in the dummy uh, area and um, give them some stimulation with, uh, with hand pressure on their sheath. They will mount that dummy relatively Okay. Um, you know, within a, a, a few sessions, anyway. sometimes it's not the first session. Sometimes it is, maybe it takes two or three. Times. So, um, but yeah, we train those boars that are relatively young. So then after you collect the semen, what's that process like all the way into packaging? Yeah. So again, a little bit different at, at, at certain places, but um, some boar studs will have pneumatic tubes where they're connecting the boar stud to the lab. Some will have a pass-through window. Um, some will have to take the, the ejaculates in a bag from the boar stud and actually drive it to a lab, depending on what those distances are. So, um, so most most of the semen is delivered as a as a raw ejaculate to the lab, um, and then the technologies in the lab obviously has changed a lot over the years too. So. Um, there are still some labs that do a, a manual visual uh, process through a microscope and use some sort of a photometer um, to measure concentration of the ejaculate, where others are using CASA systems, computer-aided semen analysis systems, where there's a software telling them what the motility and the concentration is. Um, and there's multiple, multiple different styles of those out there. Um, but they give you a good estimation of what that motility concentration is so that you're able to do very simple math, what the volume of the ejaculate is times the concentration divided by the number of sperm cells you want in your fingers. And that will give you the number of doses that are risk in that. Hmm. Um, from that standpoint, then we're using some sort of dilution media, which we peg as extender in the industry. So it's, um, um, all extenders are some sort of a um, sugar and sodium citrate combination with multiple other uh, ingredients in, inside of that extender uh, to protect that sperm cell. We'll mix that raw ejaculate with that extender and get it to a volume of the number of doses that, that you're needing, that are needed, and then put them in some sort of package type based on volume. The volumes. How yeah, how how many doses do you get from one ejaculate? Yeah, so that can be very, very variable. Um, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> it, it all depends on what's going on, right? So our industry has changed from a very traditional mating system yep. across the globe where we would be 80 milliliters in a tube or bag of semen, um, somewhere around three to four billion sperm cells early on in the late 90s and early 2000s. 
And today we have so much different variety of what those packages look like. Really? There's that much variety in what people are looking for from how much they want? For sure. Yep. So traditional doses or conventional doses uh, today are going to range from 65 to 80 milliliters. And they're going to range from 2 billion to 3 to 3.5 billion total sperm cells in that. So that would be more of a just traditional catheter, a traditional dose of semen, traditional mating scenario. Yep. With post-cervical, <clears throat> excuse me, with post-cervical insemination, things have gotten drastically different. And there's so many different volumes and packets. Um, most post-cervical I've heard as low as 32 milliliters, hmm. uh, all the way up to 60 milliliters everything in between from a volume standpoint. And then when you talk about sperm cells, the lowest I've heard is 1.3 billion total sperm cells, all the way up to two and a half billion sperm cells, and everything in between. Um, That's just crazy to think of them in terms of billions. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, That's very incredible. than the rest of the species in the world, for sure. Yeah, so that the the difference in or those varieties of volumes and concentrations is really dependent on genetic companies and what genetic companies are asking for. Um, it's dependent on the, what the bore stud and the bore stud capabilities are, and then still comes down to the south farm and what they feel is correct for their. Farm. Sometimes that is a feeling and not there's no backing to it, um, but that there's very. Uh, there's a lot of variation when it comes to volumes and concentration across our industry, especially. So then let's say one ejaculate, how many bat on average for traditional for what yeah. we had done, how many bags does that go into? A hundred, fifty? No, you're um anywhere from twenty to thirty. Okay. Um, I mean, there's boards that will do more than that, but I would say on average, industry wide, we're probably around 24 or 25 doses per ejaculate, traditional. Um, post cervically, then you can add exponentially add to that based on what the volume is going to be. So for people who are listening, most people listening are involved in the industry, but those who aren't involved in the industry, that took the industry from a single sire to a single sow, dam, to one sire to 24, 25 female so from a sustainability standpoint an efficiency standpoint and cost management it's just incredible yeah yeah the other thing that we do different in north america um than say europe for instance is we pool ejaculates together so we may take um you know two to five six bores and pool them together um and make uh, a genetic pool of those mm-hmm. different genetic value bores, different volumes, different utilities, concentrations, morphologies, all that type of stuff, pull it in, into a big pot and get an average of all of those numbers and then separate that out. And the reason we went to pooling um, was to spread the, the bores value across more sows um, because we know that it only takes one sperm cell to fertilize one egg. Um, so the potential of being able to get that boar across more females and, and stretch him out farther was actually the the idea behind pooling. 
Um, there's other ideas behind pooling. There, Don Levis did a bunch of research back in the day with three bores and bores A, B, and C, and one bore may not agree with another bore from a seminal plasma standpoint, and we don't have time to go into the yeah. research, but um, <laughs> but that's that was the idea behind so can you talk a bit more about packaging and then storage? Um, just particularly what storage should be and why? Yeah. Yeah. So the interesting thing over time um, is that we as an industry were told that um, we needed to be able to collect semen and get it to the south farm as fast as possible. Um, the pressure was better. That was always the idea behind it. And that it was okay to quick cool, um, take a dose of semen from, say, 30 degrees Celsius and drop it all the way down to 17 degrees Celsius um, in, a, in a quick manner to deliver that semen to the south. The south farms were always told that if you're not in a range of temperatures from 16 to 18 degrees Celsius, if you get semen delivered outside of that range, something's wrong. And so it put a ton of pressure on the bore studs from a delivery standpoint. I mean, back when I started, we were using only UPS and FedEx or pickup to get, to get semen to the farms. And now we've gone to the whole industry. Pretty much everybody is couriering semen from the bore stud to the south. Mm. Um, there's very little that goes through the mail or through UPS or not only because it gets lost, but because it takes time and the temperature changes are, are very different. So, so the one thing that I do want to iterate is that the bore studs are doing the best job that they can to put good bacon seeds in the dose of seed. They're not doing a bad job. Nobody wants to do it. They're doing the best that they can. And so what, what we've had to go through over the years is to try and figure out how to keep our customers happy, which are the South Farms or the genetic companies, but also do what we can do with people and the processes that need to be done in a bore stud to make a good product. And that's still evolving as we move forward because um, there's a lot of the industry that still believes that fresher is better, that we need to have semen delivered to us within 24 hours of when it was collected. Everything needs to happen fast. And is and that just not the case? It's not the case. Not the okay. case. That's what I was picking up. Yeah. And so, and that's changed and that continues to evolve. So we need to think of sperm cells like marathon. Huh. Give, me a, give me a second here and I'll explain this. So if you take a marathon runner and you tell that marathon runner to go sprint the first three kilometers, and he sprints that three kilometers as fast as he can, gets out in front of everybody, is he going to make it to the end in a relatively good shape? Meaning he's going to win the race or he's going to be in a better position at the end than he was at the beginning? And my answer is no. Yeah, he'll overexhaust himself. You're going to overexhaust them. They, they can't surround themselves and get their body into a, a good position to finish the race. A sperm cell is the exact same thing. If we take a sperm cell and we cool him down as fast as we can, we change his environment as quickly as possible, he is not going to be the best sperm cell at the end. 
The reason for that is hydrodynamics. There's there's hydrodynamic forces that happen. The the actual uh, ejaculate or the process of ejaculating sperm cells is a normal process, but it was meant to go straight from the bore to the female. And we're doing it completely differently. We're taking the semen out of the, the sperm cells out of a bore. We're putting them in an environment that is not the same temperature as a cell. Those sperm cells are not going through the same processes that they're. And now we're asking them to do something that they're just not, not ready for. And that's the membrane around the sperm cell is, is the reason. A membrane is what protects that sperm cell and everything that's in that sperm cell. So we have to give that membrane a chance. And, there's, um, and so to be able to take that membrane and care for it as we're, as we're going through the process, that's what extenders are for or should be for. It is to protect and give that sperm cell the opportunity. But we can also do other things about giving that sperm cell that marathon race and, and slowly cooling that sperm cell in order to give him the, the maximum potential of fertilizing egg on the backside. And so slow cooling, um, being able to give that, that sperm cell time is the direction we're headed, especially at Minitube. Uh, to be able to give um, that sow, that breeding, or that sperm cell, and that egg the best opportunity to fertilize, and that takes a, that takes processes. That takes time at the boar stud. It takes the understanding of the of the sow farm and and what needs to happen in those scenarios, and to not think that um, that we need freshers better. Um, it also gives us the opportunity to change our arrival temperatures. So extenders today, um, you know, when we started and the reason fresher's better mindset is there, which there's no research behind fresh is best. Um, but the reason it's there is because the extenders we had early on was with BTS. And the BTS was good for 72 hours. So we needed to collect that semen, get it into that extender, get it to the south farm and get it used. Modern extenders today give us a lot more time than we have. How much five, time do you get? We have a five to seven, nine, 10, 12 days. As long as that semen's taken care of, there is opportunity to stretch that. Um, every company that's a competitor of ours would tell you that there's a certain number of days, um, but long term storage is capable anywhere from seven to 10 days and six days today, as long as it's taken. Gotcha. So what, are, what things do people mess up the most? Like what are, you talked about some misconceptions. Yeah. What are some of the basics that if people just do them right and do them consistently, they're going to be successful? Well, the first one's trust your worst. Okay. They're doing a job for you. Um, they're, they're, they're offering you a service and they're not going to give you bad product. That's not their goal. I mean, their goal is. To How would they give you bad product? Sorry to cut in. Yeah, I would, it would be really tough today in a commercial boar stud world to not know before the semen was delivered that something happened. Okay. There are things that can happen. There are things we've had problems in where we've had um, uh, extenders that did not work properly or package types that didn't work properly. And sometimes the boar stud doesn't know. Ahead of that, we found, you know, there was a package situation 
nine years ago, I guess now, um, that the motility was still good, but it was hard to see it on the backside. The only reason we found it was because of fertility. And I say we as an industry, not me or. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we as an industry found it um, because of a fertility problem. Most of the problems that any Borsta would have today, they're going to find before that semen leaves the, to get delivered. To Just them. because of how modernized it's become. Yes, because they're doing quality control checks. They're sending semen to labs to be able to get um, to get answers for what their semen that particular day or a snapshot of that day was produced. And so they're able to figure out a lot of that stuff. Um, so it's very seldom. It does happen. Very seldom is their bad product. So. All right. So the first is trust the bore stud. Trust the bore stud. The second thing is to protect yourself as a south farm and use some sort of an off-site seam. Uh, and, yeah. and don't allow the couriers to come to yourself. It can be at the end of a long driveway or a, or a shed on that site or whatever, but try and get semen dropped at a location that's not south. So in order to do that, you're going to have to have some sort of a semen storage unit or something that's temperature controlled for the customer, the bore stud to drop the semen off to. Um, but I would suggest always having some sort of an offsite semen. Um, it protects you from any biosecurity reasons. Um, those couriers are delivering to multiple different farms, so it makes sense for you just to have a site where that courier doesn't have to drive. Keep in mind that courier is also going to follow biosecurity rules with boots and gloves and that type of thing to protect you and the borsta. So they're going to put boots on when they get out of their vehicle and drop the semen off, new boots and possibly even wear gloves. Um, vehicles are going to get washed from time to time, all of that stuff. So, it's a heck of a lot worse when the boar stud breaks with something than it is with a south farm. I mean, the, for everyone, it matters. But when a boar stud breaks, that's a really big deal. Correct. I mean, they're going to be completely depopulated, shut down for a long period of time. It goes through a very, you know, major cleanup. So it's going to be a tough tough road to hold for them if they, if they would bring anything back. So it's not only good for the producer to not have a semen drop at the farm, but it's also good for the boar stud and it protects right. their supplier. Yeah. And I would say a majority of the industry is down that path already, but it is something that if you're not, uh, or you don't have an offsite semen drop, I would, I would for sure. Consider. So what's number three. Number three is, is the semen storage unit inside the farm and how you take care of semen. Um, that, that you have a huge investment of genetic value and all of those doses that you're bringing to the South, regardless of what you're paying for them. I don't care. I won't get into that discussion, but, <laughs> but the, the semen doses that get delivered to your South farm, it's the biggest, one of the bigger investments you have in your system, not because of the cost of the dose of semen, but because of the genetic value. Side. And so as long as you take care of that semen properly, um, both when you receive it, but also during its use at the South Farm, then having that semen storage unit to help you with that process is a big. Um, and so if you don't, if you're using something like a wine cooler or a refrigerator that's just got some temperature control system on it, you're not protecting that, that investment. Semen storage units, there's a lot of them out there. Um, they should heat and cool. 
They should have some sort of a QC report with them when you buy it from the manufacturer that tells you that they were that they were tested and that their control units are good and everything worked properly. Um, the other thing inside of a Siemens storage unit is you should take. Um, we have to remember that we're we're tracking a tube of semen or a bag of semen which has got liquid in it, and that temperature of that liquid is what we care about. Mm-hmm. Most of the semen storage units, the the reading you're getting on that control unit is the air temperature inside. And so um, for many tubes, we take our semen storage units and we test them with water to set those controllers so that we're able to make sure that the air temperature and the water temperature is the same or the semen temp. However, I would always suggest to people, regardless of what you're doing, you should have some sort of a thermometer, preferably a mercury thermometer, inside a cup of water in your semen storage unit. So you can look at that temperature and make sure that temp is the same as your controller. I was just about to ask, are you putting a thermometer in water? Or are you using an infrared yeah. scanner? Like, So it's a yeah. thermometer, mercury, and water. Yeah, that's, that's what we would suggest. And every one of our units is delivered with that thermometer so that all you had to do is get a cup of water and stick it in the corner. That's cool. Um, so as far as, as far as Siemens storage units go, I mean, that, again, that's, that's your biggest investment. Make sure that you're taking care of that Siemens storage unit. Um, follow the manufacturer's uh, recommendations on where to install it, how often you should clean it. Um, there should be a troubleshooting section in a manual of some sort so you know what you're doing. Um, and then how to adjust settings. And if you don't know any of that stuff, you should call them. I mean, that, that's that's what we're here for. Yeah. Call us. We'll help you through that process so we can we can protect that investment. So is that is that the the key things people really just need to focus on if they do those right? More likely than not, they're going to be okay. Yeah, and that, there's you know the other thing that I would mention is is a care checklist. Um, on how to handle that semen when it goes out to the barn. Um, you should only take the, and there's a lot of people, a lot of veterinarians are telling South Farms this, so you've probably heard this before, but only take the number of doses out to the South Farm that you need for that day. Um, if you're short one, it's a lot shorter walk back to the, to the semen storage unit to get another dose than it is to take doses and put them back that may have been through a huge shift in temperatures and then not have that, that capability um, for yeah. high fertility that they should have. Yeah. It's a lot faster to go back to the semen cooler and grab a dose or two than to take a sow that didn't come into heat and put her through the whole process again, heat check. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're talking minutes versus hours of labor. Right. Yeah. Or days if she doesn't yeah. settle at all. So, so that's one, um, you know, the other one is hygiene. I mean, hygiene is probably the biggest talked about scenario, whether it's inside of the bore stud in semen collection or at the south farm in, um, in cleaning vulvas and making sure catheters are clean. Uh, I had a funny story. I was out at the south farm early in October um, and went out to the gestation barn and the guys were having problems and um, walked through the gestation barn and one of the breeding techs had probably 10 catheters open shoved in his boot as he was walking through the gestation. You're kidding. So all those catheters are just in his boot loose. 
Um, I don't know what he had on his coveralls or inside his boot, but I told did you about free. Yeah, I did. I told the farm manager, I'm like, well, problem one is right there. We probably need to change that. So not that that's happening everywhere, but those are the little things that can change um, the potential for fertility. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so hygiene is another one. I, I mean, taking care of your hygiene, making sure salvolvas are cleaned, uh, you know, before you enter a cathode, all of those things. We have to remember she's going to go through an immune response during breeding, regardless of the scenario, whether she's clean, dirty, that semen entering um, the uterine, the uterus is going to cause an immune response. And that is from natural mating all the way to AI to post-cervical. It doesn't matter. It's going to happen. That is reproductive. So we want to try and minimize that immune response if we can as much as we can. So to kind of wrap things up, before I ask you for a golden nugget, yeah. how can people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more, have questions about some of the things you've talked about? Yeah, so, I mean, the easiest thing is, I mean, our website has a lot of this on it, um, but you can contact me through email. Um, John.Quackenbush at Minitube.com is my email address. Um, just like it sounds, Quackenbush, it's not too difficult to spell. Um, but those are, yeah, contact us or anybody on my team, and they can, they can walk you through some of this, what we can offer to you, how we can help you out in those scenarios. Well, cool. So now to wrap things up, what is something unique about you most people in the industry do not know? Um, people probably know, but I'm kind of, a, I'm a big sports freak. Um, I, but it's not like you would think. It's not the NFL or the NBA or anything like that. Uh, I'm a big fan of youth and high school sports and okay. what that does to kids. Um, the discipline that teaches you all of the things that that you can learn from that standpoint. I wish youth sports, youth sports were not going in the direction they are right now. Um, but um, I, I'm a big part of a lot of the youth sports organizations wherever I'm. So that's coaching, doing volunteer work, whatever it is. I referee, I do all those things so that I can help. So out of curiosity, what, uh, what direction is youth sports going that is concerning? Yeah, in my opinion, it's in the negative standpoint. Everybody thinks that their kid is the next LeBron James oh, okay. or the next whoever, Peyton Manning or whoever you want to call it. Um, and they spend a ton of money doing that. And if that's what your family wants to do, I'm all for you. Um, but is it creating some... a gap between who can actually participate in sports because of the amount of money poured into it? Correct. Yeah, gotcha. I, I, that's my opinion. Um, we lose the we lose the ability to just have recreation happen in the summertime for kids to just come and enjoy something where now you have to try out and, and there's trophies and there's all of this stuff that's happening in youth sports that um, you got to have the best uniform and you got to have, uh, if you're, if you're not spending thousands of dollars to go on a travel team, you're not, uh, you're not going to be an athlete, that type of thing. And it's just in the wrong direction at my that's incredible. I mean, I see it on Facebook, how nice the uniforms are getting, how elaborate this process is. And I talked to some parents who had basically said, yeah, I couldn't afford to take my son, who was very talented, and put him into this because I couldn't take the time to travel and I couldn't spend all the money that was that was needed to really yeah. support that. 
it's it's separating the classes out just in youth sports, and that's not okay. That's if you yeah. can afford it, or or maybe you can't afford it. Maybe you throw it on a credit card or whatever. I mean, that's that's your prerogative. But um, but there's very few of those kids that make it to college. So make sure it's enjoyable for them and that they learn something from it, um, and that they 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 become good humans because of sports, not not because you had the ability to spend. Yeah, no, it is interesting because when you look at the professional leagues, it's, I mean, you see a lot of genetic continuation. Oh, for sure. And then you hear just a ton of stories where people came from nothing mm-hmm. and in their nothingness time, because they had no money to go do anything else, they just played ball. Yep. And yeah, if we start to make this a class thing that you might actually find that the people who can't afford it are probably the ones who are most set up to succeed. So it, that's going to be disappointing. Yeah. Um, so you were just in the Bahamas too. Did you yeah. swim with the pigs? I did not. I, uh, <laughs> I work with enough pigs for a living that that did not intrigue me by any means. I was across the island from them and I watched them walk from a pen in the back of trees down to the water, play with the kids and then walk back up there. So they were very well trained. Uh, but I, the, the Bohemians will tell you that if you want to, want to do something while you're there, that is the place to go is to go play with the pigs. And so it's that's pretty, what I hear. Pretty big attraction. For sure. So what is your golden nugget, a bit of life wisdom that you'd like to share with listeners? Yeah. So I, I think in this topic for sure, it's just stay open-minded. Um, you know, because we did it one way back in the day, doesn't mean that that's the right way to do it today. Um, I just talked about freshers better and, and temperature ranges and that type of thing, there's, there's a better way to do things. There's a better way that we can, that we can help um, create fertility and create, um, create scenarios that are, that are different than the way we started or the way we learned. So to be open-minded, and that goes for a lot of different. Um, you know, there's one of the things that I didn't bring up, and I'm just looking at my notes now, is, is rotating doses. Um, we were always told that you had to rotate semen doses twice a day. And if you didn't rotate semen doses, something was going to happen to those sperm cells. And there's research since 1998 telling us that that's not the case. I'm and- so glad you brought this up. <laughs> I was talking to someone who actually had the person who was really driving the rotating of semen doses said, now nah, that was really just something we did because we wanted people to check it twice a day to make sure that the temperature was right. And yeah. that it was almost this complete fallacy to convince people to take it seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm all about your staff going to the semen storage unit and checking. And if you want them to rotate semen doses in the morning, when they do that, by all means, once a day, you can do that. But rotating semen doses is not a necessary yeah. <laughs> so be open-minded when you're, when you're hearing stuff from somebody, ask the question, is that really the case today? Or was that just something we did before because we didn't know any better? Or maybe the research told us that. Um, but there's a lot of that going on today. So stay open-minded, uh, ask questions. By all means, you can call me, email me, whatever, and we'll help you through some of those scenarios. Um, know that your boar stud's doing a good job. Know that those people uh, have your best interest in heart every day when they're processing semen. 
And if you have a question, you call them, ask them the same thing because they will tell you what's going on. So that's, that's my goal. Well, thank you for joining us on the popular pig podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Matthew. A lot of fun. Thank you for joining us on this episode of popular pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.